is my business right for investment? And the, the question you really need to answer there is, is there ever going to be an opportunity for an investor to exit this business? Am I ever going to sell it? And there's going to be an opportunity for those investors to get a return on their money. So that's almost the first battle. And then the second on working out whether or not your business is just viable in the first place is really having a a close, hard look at your finances, which is a subject that so many entrepreneurs really do shy away from, myself included, when I first started out, because it can feel like this big, scary thing that you don't really want to face. But ultimately, a, a, a good financial plan and a good financial model in terms of cash flow and projected profitability will tell you whether or not this business could ever really work. And it's defining, is there ever going to be an opportunity where this business can be profitable within the next one to three years. Welcome to the Lifestyle Edit Podcast, a show about creative female entrepreneurs and the businesses they've built. I'm your host, the Lifestyle Edit founder, Naomi Ndudu, and each week I deep dive with a female founder on topics like business models and revenue streams, marketing and branding, building a team and scaling, and how they are managing to cultivate a life and business they love, and all on their own terms. Our goal each week is to take you on a narrative journey of the opportunities and challenges in business right now and offer insights you can immediately apply in growing or starting your business. Helena, welcome to the Lifestyle Edit Podcast. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. This is so exciting. I am so excited to have you because we've had some really fantastic um, conversations and so I'm really excited for you to be able to share some of the amazing expertise that you have in all things investment and numbers on the podcast. So thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. So before we dive into all things strategy, I'd love for you to take me back and just walk me through your professional journey up to this point. It has been a pretty colourful journey for me, um, filled with lots of incredible highs and some pretty low lows as well. I first started working when I was 13, in fact, the day after my 13th birthday, and I got a job working in a local cafe. I was washing dishes, and it was back when you could still smoke indoors, and I absolutely hated the physical labour and the work. But I absolutely loved having my own money and having that first taste and I guess sense of freedom that came as a result of working and earning my own money and being able to spend it. And at the time that was on, you know, very excellent things like step CDs and GHD straighteners and other high quality items that 13 year olds would want at the time. Um, But that first job for me really sparked this sort of love-hate relationship I've had with work ever since and I started working when I was 13 and very quickly after that I got my first job working in retail and I worked in All Saints um, which is a pretty big brand name now but at the time it was still quite small it was right when they first started out and I was working in one of the Glasgow stores and I first realized then the trend that you have between supply and demand and I would see things being featured in magazines 
And then on a Saturday, they would sell out and there would be queues of people coming in to buy this leather jacket that someone had been wearing or whatever. And I thought, there's something in this here. How can I turn this into a business and make more money from this? So I started buying things that I knew would sell out and I would buy them at full price, retail price from stores. And I would then go and sell them on eBay. And I started doing this from 16 and I never really stopped. And it kind of grew into this quite big business for a teenager to have. I was making significant um, amounts of money and it enabled me to go to university and it paid for me to have an amazing time at university and go traveling and all of these wonderful things. And then when I graduated, I decided I'm not going to get a conventional job that would be far too easy. I'm going to take what I'm doing on eBay because I was making significant sums of money and, and I'll, I'll make my own e-commerce store. It can't be that difficult. <laughs> um, it's not going to be that big a deal. I'm already selling on eBay. Why wouldn't this work in my own store? So that's exactly what I did. And I had my own e-commerce business straight out the gate at 21. Um, and I had my own online shop and I was selling sustainable fashion brands and I'd done a degree in sustainable development. So it was really combining my knowledge and my love for retail with, with this business that I'd already been running on eBay. And I saw a lot of initial success. I raised some very early stage capital. Um, but ultimately, because my business had grown so organically, I didn't really know what I was doing from a financial point of view. And I completely took my eye off the ball financially and completely underestimated how much traffic it would take. I would need to drive to a website that wasn't eBay to make the kind of sales that I was making before. And again, this was all pre-social media days. So there was no Facebook advertising. There was no Instagram um, there was very, very primitive sort of Google advertising, but that really wasn't something that I was into. And basically, I didn't get myself and my business in shape to raise investment soon enough after my after my first initial round of investment. And I fell into the trap that lots of entrepreneurs do of in this cycle of working 24-7. I was completely tied to my desk, a slave to my inbox. I found it incredibly stressful and had an enormous amount of pressure on my shoulders for someone who was 22 years old. And the turning point really for me came when I lost my hair to stress-related alopecia and I appreciate this as a podcast but if you've ever seen a picture of me I've got quite long hair there's quite a lot of it and I lost uh, yeah I lost my hair from stress-related alopecia and that's when I realized okay something really has to stop now I need to take stock and it was actually my investor came to me and said I love you I love what you're doing I will always back you um but you need to stop what you're doing now because this isn't worth it and it's not going to work fast enough for you isn't it crazy sometimes that it takes like your body giving you a signal like that for you mm -hmm. to just slow down yeah exactly um so that's not a path I recommend anyone anyone ever go down but un unfortunately I think sometimes you do you just keep going until your body tells you actually you know what you need to really stop this now and that's in, for me that manifested itself in in me losing my hair Wow. So I want to unpack that a little bit. So 
you, I know you did two rounds in that first business. How at 21, 22, did you even have the wherewithal to, to open that Pandora's box of raising? I think I'd spent a lot of time looking at what other entrepreneurs were doing, other people I admired. Um, and I spent a lot of time on Google trying to work out, right, how are these other people growing these big e-commerce businesses? Because I can do this on eBay, but how are these, how are retailers getting this volume of customers? And that was my first introduction of, well, businesses raise investment. And I think it was a very basic start of me initially reading blog posts and and looking at content on the internet and understanding, okay, actually, if I'm going to do this well, I'm going to need to raise some investment. And it was at that point that I was, when I raised my first round of investment, I was in retail. So I was in a traditional buying season about a year ahead. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to need to go out and buy this stock. And I don't physically have the cash flow to be spending sort of 50, 60,000 pounds on the stock that I need to maintain my sales in the next year. And it was at that point I decided, okay, I'm going to need to raise some um, investment. And Google became my best friend. I did so much research and quite creepy levels of stalking <laughs> to find out how I was going to be able to get this money. And really, I think looking back at it now, I need probably do need to give myself more credit for how tenacious I really was at 21 to be like, I need this money. I'm going to run this business. I'm going to find someone who's, who will help me and who will give me this money. And at the time I was part of an accelerator program and I had some support from the Prince's Trust and I had seen Michelle Moan speak and she's a fellow Glasgow girl um, from quite a similar area to me and I remember going up and speaking to her and being like what should I do and she was like you probably need to look at raising some investment and she will never ever in a million years remember that conversation but I remember it and that was really how I first found out that investment was something that I could do and that there were people out there who would give you your money to help you grow grow your business. How did you find that experience because I guess that's a fantastic thing, and I hear it so often with people that have started their businesses at that, that age, that naivety and kind of pure ambition and passion kind of pushes you through. But I'm sure it must have been daunting going into those kind of meetings. Oh, it was, it was awful. Um, I remember feeling so sick with nerves, and the first investment pitch I ever went to was um, in one of those sort of ivory tower looking city blocks in the city of London and I walked into this boardroom and there was this table and it was surrounded by men there were no women I was the only woman to get out of the lift added to the fact that I was in jeans and like a shirt and some boots and they were in, all in suits and I walked in and I remember looking through the window and seeing the London eye and thinking to myself, what am I doing here? <laughs> I, am, I felt so far out of my depth. And that was the first time I ever got a real grilling from investors. And actually, as I think about it now, I can, I can remember exactly what it felt like. And it was terrifying. Um, but that kind of experience straight out the gate taught me so much about okay, this is the very serious grown-up world of investment that I'm operating in here. If I'm going to make this work and raise 
any kind of investment, I'm going to really need to sharpen my pencil and and play the game that these investors are used to playing. So how long did it take for you to go for your second round? My second round of investment between my first and my second was about four and a half months. Is that not, is that common? No, no, <laughs> I would not recommend you go down that route. Um, and that was purely because, again, I'd never done it before and I fell into the trap. Lots of people fall into is I didn't raise enough money in my first round of investment. So I raised a really tiny amount, about £30,000, which anyone who's raised any kind of capital for their business before will know, or if you're running any kind of business, in fact, how quickly you can burn through £30,000. It seems like a lot of money until you've got it to invest in your business, especially if you're in a consumer product. Um, and it just went like that. It was gone in a flash. And I was like, oh, I probably need to go and raise some some more again. So that was the reason that I had to do two rounds of investment. So it was essentially double the work because I had to go out and start that process again of finding more investors. And my original investor gave me some more money, but then I had to go out and, and start that, that trail again and find some more investment for the second time forward what ultimately made you decide to move away from that business because what I love about your your blog which you'll start to talk about um guide to growth is that you're so candid about that transition and you know some of the financial pressures that you had at that time um before you decided to end up um going into full-time employment um for Mm -hmm. a little while First of all, can you talk to me a little bit about that transition and what made you decide to be so candid about that? I think what ultimately made me stop running my my first business was purely the financial perspective of just seeing in black and white on paper that this business wasn't going to grow fast enough to be able to sustain me. And I had been running that business yes in a very infant form since I was 16 so for about eight years and I just thought you know what I am tired of this now and it's not making me happy and it's certainly not going to be able to provide for me financially anytime soon and the reason I'm so candid about it is because I think not enough people are I think lots of people put up this very glossy version of what happens, especially when it comes to finances, because it's like it's this dirty thing for you to talk about if you've ever made any kind of mistakes or you've taken on any debt or something didn't work out for you. People try to gloss over that. And I think there's a space online, especially for for someone to talk about, well, this is actually what happened to me. And this is the nitty gritty thing. And I'm really not unique in that fact. I know so many other business owners who have been in a very similar position to me. They're just not talking about it. Yeah. And I feel like the reason they're not talking about it is because there is this almost this taboo around talking about your mistakes and admitting that you, you not that you failed at something, but something didn't go quite to plan. And it was really important for me to be open and honest about it, especially given what I do now and the work I do now with entrepreneurs for me to say, I can hold my hands up to that. I am far from perfect. I made a lot of mistakes in my first business, but I learned from every single one of them. And I have never made another one of those mistakes ever again. Um, So that really is what pushes me and drives me forward in terms of how candid I am about what I did specifically financially in my first business. 
So entrepreneurship had been such a big part of your story for many years. How mm. did it feel like now going into full-time employment? I mean, awful. I don't even like to think that I went through a time of being full-time employed because I was always still running a side business alongside being in full-time employment. So I did, I, I shut the doors on my first business and I thought, right, I've got to pay the rent. And actually now I'm lumbered with a lot of debt um, from this business and I need to pay this off. So I had to go out and get a conventional job. And I'm slightly concerned that my two previous employers may be listening to this. Um, but I was always running a business on the side when I had full-time employment. So it didn't really feel as though I wasn't I had a regular job because I always had this side thing on the go that I was doing something between, you know, 8 and 6 p.m. And then I was going home and I was back selling things on eBay. I didn't change my original business model. I kept doing it. I just went back to what I knew worked and what I knew I could do and I could do well. So it was interesting because I know you ended up heading up the marketing department for a luxury children's brand. Mm -hmm. And Although your job title was head of marketing, you ended up being really instrumental in helping them raise money. How did that happen? So once you've raised money, word tends to get around a little bit, especially if you've raised money and you also know how to sell things online. And it was actually an investor that had mentioned, oh, I've worked with Helena before. She knows a thing or two about raising investment. Um, I know this company you guys want to to raise some money and you're looking for someone to fill this position why doesn't Helena come on board and, and do that for you and that's really essentially why why I got that job was because they knew that I knew how to raise money amazing so of course now you run um, Guide to Growth you are an incredible coach that really helps entrepreneurs on the finance side of your business of their businesses um how did that transition now happen really again organically and it's never something I expected to do if you'd said to me when I was 21 raising that first round of investment in you know eight years time you'll actually be helping other people to do this I would have fallen off my chair and left you out of the room because I knew nothing at the time about raising investment but once you've done it a few times, there are some trends and some key things that come up time and time again. And there's definitely a very specific um, way to raise investment, regardless of what kind of business that you're in. And what I do now grew really organically through word of mouth after people saying, oh, I'm, I'm looking to raise investment. Do you know anyone who can maybe help me? Um, I'm being referred through investors that I'd met whilst raising money before going to networking events and just generally speaking to people and initially helping a lot of people for free I'd on the side while I was still working I helped three three other businesses raise around about 3.3 million pounds while I was still in a full-time job working with someone else to raise wow. their round of money so it grew very organically and then I was in the the fortunate position to think actually this is something I'm really passionate about and whenever I googled anything online about raising investment it was still the same kind of stuff that was coming up that I'd originally looked at when I was 21 and I just thought this is all so dry and and nothing is practical nothing's really helping anyone most of this stuff is written by men and it's not what it's actually like at the coalface in reality when you're an entrepreneur pitching for investment 
and it all seemed very generic. There was nothing that was really meaty and actionable that I could take away and, and use as a, a blueprint a blueprint for raising investment. So that's really what I wanted to create with the work that I do with people at the Guide to Growth. So there'll be many people listening who either are about to start a business or currently have a business. And I think there's this kind of very thin line between a business that just isn't viable and a business that has legs but needs finance to really soar. How do you distinguish between the two? That's like such a difficult question. But are there any kind of telltale signs? Um, firstly, there's there's also the difference between a viable business and a one that's an investable business. So traditionally, there are certain businesses that would find it very, very difficult to raise private equity funding. So if that's what we're talking about here in the sense of you're giving away shares in exchange for money, there's certain business models and sorts of kinds of businesses that don't really lend themselves to raising private funding, or they maybe do at a much later stage. So namely, this is things like people in service-based businesses. So if you were growing an agency or something like that, that would be very difficult for you to raise private equity funding for until a much later stage. Um, And also, in some cases, lots of product and retail-based businesses as well. So there's also that line to walk on, is my business right for investment? And the the question you really need to answer there is, is there ever going to be an opportunity for an investor to exit this business? Am I ever going to sell it? And there's going to be an opportunity for those investors to get a return on their money. So that's almost the first battle. And then the second on working out whether or not your business is just viable in the first place is really having a a close, hard look at your finances, which is a subject that so many entrepreneurs really do shy away from, myself included, when I first started out, because it can feel like this big, scary thing that you don't really want to face. But ultimately, a a, a good financial plan and a good financial model in terms of cash flow and projected profitability will tell you whether or not this business could ever really work. And it's defining, is there ever going to be an opportunity where this business can be profitable within the next one to three years as long as I get investment so that's really what you need to be spending some time looking at and then if you're still questioning you know is this a a viable investable proposition then my second piece of advice would be to go out and find some investors and actually ask them you know am I barking up the right tree here do you think this business has got legs um, particularly with an investor who might be interested in your space or your industry and from experience most investors are pretty friendly people and they're willing to pay it forward and, and give as much advice as they possibly can to other entrepreneurs and they will tell you pretty honestly whether or not they think it's ever going to have legs So what are some of the numbers that every founder needs to be checking in on, whether monthly or weekly, to make sure that they're they're on track? So one thing that I advise absolutely everyone to do, regardless of whether you're ever going to raise investment or not, is to check your cash position every single day. So that's how much money you've physically got in your bank account every day, not every week, not every month. Every day, first thing in the morning, check all of your bank accounts and see how much money is in there. 
and then any pending transactions of what's coming in and what's going out, because that's one of the biggest pitfalls. Lots of people leave it to their bookkeeper or to their accountant, or they maybe check in once a week. And really, it's not good enough, regardless of what size business that you have at the moment, getting into that habit of daily checking in on your cash position, because finances are ultimately what lots of investors are really interested in. And play it's an area lots of people can fall into that trap of not knowing their numbers. So it's a really good habit to have is understanding exactly where you're at from a cash perspective. And then in terms of understanding key metrics that investors are interested in and things you should be keeping an eye on are how much is it costing me to acquire a customer? What's the payback period for having that customer in the, in, in my business? When does that customer become a profitable customer for me? If you're acquiring a customer for £30 each, when am I making more than £30 in profit for that customer? Is that months? Is that weeks? Is it straight away? Is it a year? And then the final metric that I think is really important is what is the lifetime value of a customer in your business? How much money is that person worth to you in the end? And these can feel like really cold, hard statistics, but like it or not, lot, your business is based on money and it's based on finances. So that's what you need to be measuring. Definitely. Because I think, you know, one of the mistakes that we all make in the beginning of our businesses is this cycle of going from feast to famine, feast to famine. Are there any systems that we can put in place that can help that? I guess what you said earlier about constantly checking in every day and knowing your financial position really helps. But is there anything else that you would suggest? Um, I think, yeah, definitely checking in on your cash position, checking your bank account every single day is the, is the easiest step to take. And then also monitoring any kind of marketing activity and particularly anything that involves marketing spend, because I see that happen to people a lot where they'll set and forget something in their business, particularly if it's something like Google ads or Facebook ads or, or whatever it might be, um, and that can very quickly get out of hand. So in terms of managing a feast or famine cycle in your business, checking your bank accounts, making sure that you're not overspending and really having a strong financial system, almost like a ritual. So personally, every Friday for me and my business is finance Friday. I check my cash position every day, but I do all of my own accounting, um, all my own bookkeeping every single Friday and I get into that habit of looking at what's coming in and what's going out and then when it comes to managing you know peak periods where you may, might be making a lot of money in your business so for a lot of people that's right before Christmas and then they go into this big depression dip towards the end of January especially if you're in a business that has any kind of sale or anything like that um it's making sure that when you are in those those feast periods, you are putting enough money away in your business to see you through those times where you're going to see a dip in your cash flow. And typically, just personally, the habit I've got into in my business is 20% of everything I bring in, I put away somewhere else, somewhere that I can't touch it in a different, in a completely separate bank from my regular business banking. And that enables me, if there are ever any dips in my cash flow where I've maybe not, so there's some months where I completely blank that out of my year and think I'm going to have all of July off. So I know I'm not going to be bringing in, unless it's pass passive income, I'm not going to be bringing in 
any revenue in the month of July. So I will put away 20% religiously via direct debit so that there is no dip for me personally in terms of cash flow. But it is a discipline and and it's one you have to master over time. A quick break from today's show to talk to you all about our sponsor, Breather. Breather offer dedicated workspace in great locations in cities like London, LA, New York, San Francisco, Toronto, all without the big monthly price tag. So think beautiful spaces minus membership fees or commitment. All you need to do is pay by the hour or by the day and reschedule or cancel for free for up to two hours before your reservation. For more information, just head to breather.com. That transition to you kind of keeping an eye on the finances and pulling back in many respects, but it's equally as important to cultivate an investment mindset. So as that kind of that revenue is coming in, that you're putting it back into your self-development, whether that's in, you know, workshops or a coach or, you know, just things that you know are really going to help take your business to the next level. And I think, you know, I was guilty of that in the beginning of my business that, you know, you're so excited when you're like, yeah, I can pay myself. And, you know, things are really starting to roll that it can be really difficult to think of some of those bigger picture things. Um, How did you manage to overcome that and start really cultivating an investment mindset in your business? I think the the first part of that is the culture that I got into or the one that had almost been ingrained into me by this sort of startup culture or it might have been the kind of books I was reading or the circles I was reading at the time. It almost became this like badge of honor to not spend any money in your business. Like how much can you do for free? What can you bootstrap? All of this stuff. And honestly, from now, from the other side of the table as an investor, it's almost as dangerous if not more to not invest in both your self-development and in terms of money into your business and developing it and growing it as it is to pull back and bootstrap in your business and it is a very very fine balance and I think for me I spent a lot of time personally I hired three different coaches when I first started my business because I knew I needed to work on this whole money mindset situation of I'd gone so badly into debt was my first business that I had then personally paid off because it was really important for me even though I was running a limited company at the time I could have just walked away from all of that debt and not paid any of it off and I wasn't liable for it but personally I then took on all of that debt to repay myself and because of that you rightly said I was very fearful around investing particularly in myself and my own self-development in case it didn't pay off so I I knew that that was a quality I didn't like about myself and about that I knew could be a potential risk to my new business so I actually made that plunge and, and hired hired a coach to help me specifically with my money mindset and at the time it was the price of a small car and I remember thinking oh, this is everything. what am I doing why am I spending this money but it is again this thing you you have to train your brain to be able to run a business and to be able to run a business successfully it's not something you learn overnight and it's not something I don't believe you can do without any help and I knew I knew that so for me it was it did it felt really really uncomfortable but the idea of staying where I was was more uncomfortable and more painful than investing the money. And you have just closed your first round of investment for Guy to Grow. So how has that experience been? Um, 
Nice and smooth, I'm pleased to report. It was very, I'm, I was in a, I'm in a very fortunate position now where I deal with investors every day. They're in my network and it came very organically over a conversation we were have any, having anyway um, over dinner about what I was doing with the guide to growth and how I wanted it to grow and where I thought we could take things and the money I was very fortunate to just have it offered to me. So I wasn't expecting it. I didn't um, set out to raise investment and it came organically through a conversation, which is the nicest position to be in. And in fact, you'd be surprised how many entrepreneurs do actually raise investment in that very smooth, organic way of they weren't expecting it. They didn't necessarily set out to raise investment. Um, and that's ideally the position that you would like to get yourself into. And that really comes from a place of networking and, and not necessarily thinking, I need to go out and raise investment, but having it in the back of your mind the entire time you're running your business and sort of thinking, okay, well, maybe I don't need to raise investment right now, but if the opportunity came up, would I be open to taking on board some investment? And for me, it never really crossed my mind and until we met and we had dinner and, and someone offered me um, some investment. We've already started using some of these terms. So, you know, pre-seed, seed, round A. Can you just break down what those terms actually mean? Yes. Okay. So, Pre-seed is usually what you would initially put into your business yourself. So that's your very first round of capital into your business. And most people raise their seed round of money um, through their friends or their family or it's their personal savings. And that tends to be around about the £100,000 mark. The lines are getting much more blurred now than they ever used to be. It used to be very clear-cut. Pre-seed was up to this much money. Seed was up to this much money. And the lines have become a bit blurred now, and it's more related to stage. So pre-seed is usually your first round of money into your business. Seed stage is when you would usually have your first external party come on board. And again, that can be between... 100,000 and 500,000 pounds into your business. And that's usually your second round. Beyond that, you're looking at series A, series B, series C, and it goes all the way up to infinity. And series A usually starts at around about a million pounds. And that's usually the third round in. But some people could do two or three rounds of what we would call seed capital. So two or three rounds of half a million pounds and that's enough to sustain their growth within their business so I would never really recommend you raising more a lot more than you need to but also definitely not raising too little either so there's a, a fine balance of, of where you want to pitch yourself in terms of raising investment. Because I know that you said at the start of this conversation that four months was unusual to go for your next round is there a protocol or an etiquette? Because I guess there is that danger that, of course, you want to continue that momentum of growth, but you don't want the people that originally invested in you to be like, wow, okay, you're, this, is a re this business is already burning through cash and needs another yeah. injection. Yeah. Ideally, you want the money, any money you raise to give you a 12-month cash flow runway. So if you're raising any kind of investment, you want it to be able to sustain you for at least a year not just from an investor's point of view, but also from your own 
sanity as an entrepreneur. You don't want to spend all of your time going out and raising investment. It is a full-time job. And it's one of those things that's seriously underestimated how long it can potentially take you to raise that money. So yes, although you might want a 12-month cash flow runway, most entrepreneurs need to start going out and raising their next round of investment not too long after they're after they've just closed around because it can take such a long time to raise that round of investment especially if you're a solo founder or you've not got a very big team and it's actually you that has to go out and do those meetings and make the financial plan and create your slide deck and spend time networking and meeting investors and you've got to do that alongside a day job, one of the most dangerous positions you can get yourself into as an entrepreneur. And the position I had myself in was I just didn't have the time to manage both. So whenever I speak to anyone about I'm thinking about potentially raising investment, start thinking about it and actually doing something about it nine months to a year before you actually need the cash in your bank. Such good advice. Is there a the best time is there a best time of year to raise and how does the the kind of those periods correlate with how much you can raise so there are definitely times of year where investors are looking to get rid of money if they're in that fortunate position where they want to be investing money specifically in the UK where you get a large tax relief as an investor um, for investing capital Usually that's in Q1. So at the moment, at the time we're recording this, lots of investors are out doing deals ahead of the end of the financial year. Um, and the same is actually true in the start of Q2. So our, our tax year falls in April here. And that's also a reasonably good time to be meeting and speaking with investors because we're in a brand new tax year. Periods I tend to advise people to avoid are generally the summer months because like any, bus any business owner or any other kind of business, investors go away on summer holidays. So July, August, it's usually pretty dead and it can be really difficult to get meetings with people. So if you scheduled into your timeline or your cash flow that you're going to close a round of investment and get the cash in your bank in August, I would say maybe rethink that and either get it out of the way by June or manage things so that you could close things out in September or October time. And then in the sort of autumn, fall time of year, you're usually looking at October and November are pretty good months. December, again, out because of Christmas. So there are specific times of year. If you can plan it and time it, which I highly recommend that you do, Q1 and Q2 are the prime times to be raising money. So if you don't have investors in your network, you're literally starting from scratch, how do you even begin that relationship? Okay, so you've done your research, you've seen that there's some alignment in you know, the, the values of that investment company um, with your business. How do you even begin to initiate that relationship? I think... If you can possibly get a warm introduction, so they might not be part of your network, but they might know somebody that you know, or you might think, okay, I'm going to speak to my 
bank manager about this? You know, do they potentially know any good investment networks or can they make any introductions for me or any other entrepreneurs that you maybe know who have raised investment before and might be able to give you some warm introductions to investors? That's always the best route to go down. So to give you an idea of perspective, the investment funds that I work with tend to be looking at anywhere between 300 and 500 investment proposals a month. And that's a very low scale. So if you can imagine 300 to 500 business plans coming your way a month, having that warm introduction of one, you know, someone they've already invested in saying, hi, meet Annie. Annie runs this company. She would, she's looking for 500,000 pounds in investment. That goes a long way from the investor side of the table when they've got a stack of 500 business plans to look through. And then really after that, I guess it's, about treating investors in a similar way that you would treat a journalist in terms of being very respectful of their time and also finding a way that you can stand out and give them what they want in comparison to what everyone else is trying to give them as well. So out of those 500 business plans, probably three quarters of them will be absolutely terrible. So standing out in terms of the quality of your deck design, um, the quality of the information that you across to them and then my kind of top tip and 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 how I originally got a lot of investment contacts was I actually physically wrote to them or sent them things in the post not like creepy horrible things nice things in the post because very rarely do people get nice post that they're interested in and that they like and it stands out so much more than an email that says hi I see that you invest in retail this is my business and we're looking to raise some money this year. Anything that you can do to potentially stand out, whether that's sending a sample of product. Um, I spoke to one company once who sent one shoe to an investor and they sent a note saying, now we've got a foot in the door. Would you consider looking at my pitch deck? And that investor then invested in that business. So that one could kind of go either way. (laughs) Yeah, it could. It could. I mean, it was very cheesy, but they were like, oh, that's cheesy, but <laughs> funny. And yes, we're now going to look at this person's pitch deck. So that's really the the noise that you're trying to cut through. So I think being really creative about who you approach and then also spending a lot of time doing research on the internet on are they going to be interested in this space If they've invested in someone who is your direct competitor, who's doing something exactly the same as you are, the chances are they're not going to want to invest in your business because there'll be a non-compete clause in there or you, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. They may have invested in that business and that business isn't going so well. So therefore, they're going to be a bit wary about you approaching them for investment as well. Do you need your product or service to already be on the market when you first go for that first round? In my opinion, yes. I would always say you you want your product to be out there and generating sales and have some initial customers and prove that you can not just acquire customers once, but that you can keep them and also that you can acquire more of them. The only real exception to that are people who are developing tech businesses because they're very investment heavy they're very cash intensive 
And tech is almost this completely separate world to all other kinds of businesses. Um, And it operates in a very, very different way in terms of what investors are interested in and what metrics are measuring you against. And in that case, it's often better to actually get some investment on board when you have just built a very, very basic Um, minimum viable proposition but it's not necessarily gone out to the market yet because a lot of tech investors and certainly the tech investors that are within my network when they invest they like to invest and bring their own tech team to that business okay that makes sense they'd like to give the money and then say you know here's a million pounds and here is a ready-to-go tech team that we love your idea and we'd like you to run with this tech team Um, Because that's one of the biggest risks to that kind of business. That makes a lot of sense. Because, of course, showing revenue is important. But how much revenue is enough? Um, How long is a piece of string? (laughs) I know. Um, It's such a tricky question. It's so tricky. But I think, you know, we've all watched these these shows like Shark Tank, Dragon's Den. And, you know, that's that's the type of questions that everybody gets quizzed on. And, you know, you may think your numbers are fantastic, but, you know, to an investor, that might not be enticing enough. So what sort of numbers are you, should people be striving towards for that first round, outside outside round? So for your first outside round of investment, if you can be near enough or have good projections that you could reasonably make turn turnover, so not profit, but turnover six figures, a year in your business, then for for initial seed stage, I think that's a good a good target to be aiming for. So if you're going out and raising investment and you've got a financial projection that will show and that's got reasonable backup to believe that you would hit those numbers. So at the moment, if you're turning over consistently six or seven thousand pounds a month in revenue in your business and this money um in the not too distant future so within six months you're going to break through that six figure barrier then I think that's a good and reasonable starting place in terms of financial forecasts that is really good advice um what would you say to somebody who's unsure they know that they need to raise but they don't even know where to begin about what that figure needs to be are there any tools or resources that people can use? Um, probably people's least favorite resource or tool to use, but it's a necessary evil if you're going to raise money, and that is a spreadsheet. And making a spreadsheet your best friend. And if you don't know how to make a financial model yourself, getting some help, whether that's from um, a consultant or a coach or a financial planner or an accountant, to actually sit you down and walk you through the numbers and say, okay, this is how this works in very, very um, plain English so that you understand it. Because spreadsheets don't need to be this really big, scary thing that you don't understand. And it can become very obvious very quickly whether or not you actually need to raise investment. So a lot of my clients, when I start originally working with them, are absolutely petrified of a spreadsheet and how it works and actually when we sit down and we go through the numbers and I talk them through well this is what this number means and this is how your profit and loss is different from your cash flow 
they often realize they're in a much better position than they maybe previously thought. And actually, they didn't need to raise investment for another 18 months. And in some cases, they actually need to be raising investment in three months time. And that exercise is really, really important and really valuable to just be very, very financially aware and realistic of where you're at with your money, because you can only make smart, informed decisions if you know what is actually going on, burying your head in the sand and, and not face, facing the financial side of things is can, can lead you into um, a bit of a dark place. So I think that's the, that's the ultimate tool to, to use if you're thinking, do I need to be raising investment and when should I, when should I start doing that is getting to grips with your monthly financials, what's coming in and what's going out and working out where there's going to maybe be a dip in that cash position where you think, okay, it's, it's time for me to raise some money because I can see in July that I'm going to run out of money if I don't hit my sales targets. So if in an ideal world you now have multiple offers on the table, what advice do you have on what people should consider in deciding between offers? Go with somebody that you like. Always, whatever happens, always choose an investor or only ever pursue investors that you think, I could actually get along with that person. I could have dinner with them. I would welcome them around to my family home. I would introduce this person to my family. I would happy to be happy to have this person at my wedding. You get a gut instinct very, very quickly, just like working with anybody else about whether or not you just genuinely like someone because being in a relationship with with your investor is is more legally binding than than a marriage. Your wagon is hitched to theirs and you have to get along. It's more difficult to get out of than a marriage. Um, so it's really important that you connect and you have a really good relationship and you're all singing from the same hymn sheet. You're, you all know what direction the business is going in and you trust them and they trust you implicitly to make the right decisions because you don't ever want to get yourself into a position where you've maybe been forced to take some money um, from someone or you, you've been forced into a deal because you think, oh, well, I get a better valuation here or I get to keep some more of my equity if I go with this person over this person. And then in reality, when you start working with them, you quickly realize that their vision for the business is not the same as your vision. And you always want to be in a position where you can openly and honestly have a conversation with your investor and they trust you to take the business in the direction that you want. to. So Helena, thank you so much. There have been so many incredible nuggets of wisdom in, in this conversation. So I want to just round up and ask you whether there's any kind of lasting pieces of advice that you could give to people listening. So things that you've learned that you wish you would have known at the start of your journey. Oh, wow. There's so many, so many things I wish I had known um, at the start of my journey. And I think one of the th- one of the first things, specifically when we're talking about investment, is if you're setting out on the investment road and you're thinking, okay, I want to be raising my first round of investment, what's that going to look like for me? Think about what you would like your business to look like in the end. And that's not in a morbid sense. It's just in a, in a position where 
you're doing everything you want to be doing. Your business is running absolutely perfectly. And how many rounds of investment is it going to take you to get to that point? What does this business look like in its ideal scenario? And how much money is that going to cost you to get it to that position? What do your resources need to be like to get there? And really think about that carefully when deciding what your first round of investment looks like, because both from a shareholding and an equity point of view, in terms of your valuation and how much money you raise, it impacts all of those subsequent rounds down the road. So it's really good to have a clear idea or path in your head of what you want this business to pan out like in the future. So I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is being really clear on your financials and getting to grips with your finances and your sales and the operations of your business and how it all works. And if that's not an area that you feel comfortable with, then get help. Whether or not you have a great accountant or you work with a coach or you get mentors or you get advisors, but absolutely do not try and do it by yourself because you don't need to. Don't be a martyr and think I'm going to go out there and and do all of these things by myself because you don't need to. Other people have already done it before you and are more than willing to show you the way. So make use of that resource and those people who are out there that can can help you with the progress of your business. So I think that was something personally for me that I learned the hard way the first time around when I was so determined to go out there and do this by myself and I will make a success of this business come hell or high water. And I quickly realized when I was knocked off my high horse that actually, no, what I really needed was some help in understanding how I could grow my business sustainably, how I could grow it profitably and how I could make sure I knew how the numbers and the sales side of things worked in my business. Helena, that's amazing. Thank you so much again. And quickly before we wrap up, how can people connect with you? So I am theguidetogrowth.com online and on all social media channels, I am at The Guide to Growth. And we also have a really lovely Facebook community called The Guide to Growth Community. If you put it into Facebook, you can come and join us over there. There's lots of wonderful free resources and people not just myself, but other entrepreneurs sharing their own pearls of wisdom and advice to help you grow your business. So come on over and join us there as well. So that's it for this week's episode of the Lifestyle Edit Podcast. You can download more episodes of the show and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you enjoyed what you heard, we would love a review or recommendation. It's the number one way for us to share these stories and insights with as many creative female entrepreneurs as possible. And don't forget, all of the information on how to join the TLE community is in the show notes or simply head to thelifestyleedit.com to sign up.